This morning, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 22 through 36. Our message is titled, if you grabbed the outline, we have them on the table on your way in and at the connection table. Our message is titled, Judgment and Mercy. Now, while some in the church, as well as within popular culture, would prefer to frame God as, as only being love or grace, uh, the Bible reveals his character to be far more nuanced and balanced in terms of the inclusion of all of his attributes. He is holy. He is righteous. Our God is just. Even, and sometimes especially in the church, we tend to neglect the reality of the certainty of God's judgment, realities of, of heaven and hell. In fact, the Bible tells us, Scripture tells us, that uh, it always begins, judgment begins with those who are God's people or who claim to be. Peter, the apostle Peter, writes of this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For time, the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Further in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 30 through 31. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, there is a difference between God's judgment and discipline. And I think most of us understand that. Judgment is, is justice meted out against the unrighteous, those who reject God's mercy. Whereas discipline is that loving act that, that God directs towards his people in, in correcting them. God, he holds his people or those who claim to be to a higher standard. Now, does this mean that you and I are to live in fear as we talk about judgment, which we will this morning, and God um, judging and, and acting in those ways? Yes and no. <laughs> we should have a holy and reverential fear and awe for our God who will judge, and that really does help us understand what the fear of God means in a biblical sense, that we would understand his, his holiness in the context of the reality of, of his ability and the certainty of his eventual judgment of this world. But how does God deal with the penitent, with those that are looking for forgiveness, those that recognize, yes, I am in trouble, I have blown it, and I want God's mercy, the humble, those who wisely and, and rightly receive his mercy? Apart from the New Testament, which has a lot to say about that, I think Psalm 103 is one of the best places to go in understanding God's heart in this regard, beginning in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor has he punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Think about the ministry of Jesus Christ 
As the evangelist Ray Comfort has pointed out, Jesus' approach was always law to the proud, grace to the humble. Look at the, the contrast between the ways that Jesus dealt with the Pharisees as opposed to others who knew and understood that they were sinners. When, when Jesus spoke with those, uh, those religious experts who uh, were, were so fastidious about their law-keeping, Jesus was harsh. He said, woe unto you. But then when he encounters the woman caught in the act of adultery and broken over her sin, he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. God wants to be merciful. That is his preference, but we have to be willing to receive it, don't we? Now, as we began to see last week, the priesthood and especially um, and, and in particular, Eli's own family are facing a crisis that was impacting all of Israel. It's one of their own making, of course. In, in many ways, it's, it's Eli's fault for having neglected obvious problems that needed dealing with. Unfortunately, we can do all of the right things, and bad things can still happen. Most of us ex have experienced that. Um, and, and that's the hard part about life, let alone parenting, as we consider that in the context of Eli and his sons a little bit today and did last week as well. But there are also times in which we fail to do the right things, neglect them, and the very real and necessary consequences of our failures fall upon this, as is also the case with Eli. Neglect can cost us deeply. It can lead to grave consequences, ignoring where God wants us to respond in our hearts and lives. Robert Wentz, he speaks to this in a story he, he shares. He writes, we often fail to consider the gradual cumulative effects of sin in our lives. In St. Louis in 1984, an unemployed cleaning woman noticed a few bees buzzing around the attic of her home. Since there were only a few, she made no effort to deal with them. Over the summer, the bees continued to fly in and out of the vent, and the woman remained unconcerned, unaware of the growing city of bees. The whole attic became a hive, and the ceiling of the second floor bedroom finally caved in under the weight of hundreds of pounds of honey and thousands of angry bees. And tragically, she was crushed to death. No, I'm kidding. She didn't die. The author, that's just in case you weren't awake yet. The author writes that while the woman escaped serious injury, she was unable to repair the damage of her accumulated neglect. What we're seeing today is the damage of accumulated neglect in Eli's family and certainly in his son's lives as well. And that is going to be manifested both in judgment but also mercy. So as we move into today's message, let's ask the Spirit of God to reveal to us, to you and I, those areas where we may be guilty of neglect, where, where we are ignoring what the Spirit of God is trying to show us, where he wants us to take action, neglecting those things that he's been convicting us of, areas where, where we've failed and, and are instead nursing sin and rebellion. 
setting ourselves up for either discipline or judgment because that will ultimately come about. Real consequences, uh, either in our own lives or in the lives of those that we love. Both would be true for Eli, as we're going to learn today. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll look at these verses. Father, as we open your word this morning, we're asking that you'd speak to us, God. We, we want to be teachable. We want to learn. We want to hear, God, your voice and, and obey. We want to hear what you would say to your church this morning, what you would say to me, to us. Please speak, God, and, and would you be at work in us, both to will and to do. For your good pleasure, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our first point this morning, as we look at verses 22 through 25, is dereliction, excuse me, darkness and dereliction. Or you can do it the other way around if you like. Verse 22, now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. Now, last week I mentioned that we were only scratching the surface in terms of the evil that Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons and, and co-priests with him, were engaged in. Their, their evil of, um, rather than just taking the allotted portion from the sacrifices, taking whatever they wanted and telling the people, if you don't give it to us willingly, we're, we're just going to use force to get it. So blatant was their corruption of, of the, the worship of God's people in the tabernacle that we read last week. Therefore, the sin of the young man was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. They hated worshiping God and going to the tabernacle because they had to deal with these two and all of the many abuses that they uh, brought on the people. It was terrible. But just as we read that, that was only a symptom of the greater issue, which, which is, in fact, they were corrupt. We read in verse 12, they did not know the Lord. Their hearts were not surrendered to God. So uh, uh, of necessity, they're, they're going to engage in all kinds of fleshly and self-centered behavior. Sin. Verse 22 tells us that at this point, Eli is very old. And word reached him that his sons, they weren't only taking advantage of the people, uh, profaning the offerings and, and taking whatever they wanted as we, as we read, but they're engaging in sexual immorality with these women that are here at the door of the tabernacle to serve. Exodus uh, chapter 38 references these women that would come and serve. And actually, when you fast forward to the New Testament, we find Anna there. Uh, who was a prophetess, and she was serving there at the temple. It seems as though these women were there in a voluntary capacity, maybe serving in ways that the priests needed, um, possibly also helping to care for the children of those that were, were worshiping and uh, those that were serving. We're not entirely sure. But here they were to honor, worship, and serve God, and the priests used them and, uh, and further profaned this place that was, was to be a, a, a place of prayer. The tabernacle is deteriorating into looking something like a pagan temple. 
Eli is, of course, grieved. Verse 23, we read his response. Why do you do such things? Because he hears from other people talk of what his sons are doing. For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. Know, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. Eli confronts, but nothing more. This isn't good. He's upset, but resolve is lacking. There's no requirement of change. He, he is derelict in his duties, not only as priest, but as father to these two. It gives us probably a little bit of insight into the way that he parented these two sons and why they had turned out the way that they had. He was lax, he was unwilling to discipline, empty warnings and hand-wringing had done nothing to correct these two wayward sons. It's entirely possible that, that he did many things that were right, I would imagine that he did, but without discipline, failure is certain. The Proverbs, they are loaded with uh, insight regarding parenting and discipline. Proverbs 13, verse 24, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Now, obviously, the Bible is not advocating for um, physical abuse, but reasonable discipline, as we say that the uh, that the Board of Education would be applied to the seat of reason. And I know there are those that, uh, that struggle with that and, and the Scripture's use of this, you know, the idea of a rod and things like that, and uh, it conjures up all kinds of images. But um, it is interesting that God gave one area in our body in which there are no vital organs, and typically there's, there's a sufficient amount of adipose tissue to where when, when controlled and loving discipline is applied, a message is communicated that, that results in changed behavior. Um, if you need more resources on that, James Dobson has written some excellent books, Dare to Discipline, but then also, <laughs> if that doesn't work, maybe you have a strong-willed child, and he's written a book by that title as well. Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 22, 15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. Now, Eli acknowledges the seriousness of their sin, but not to the extent that, that he is compelled to action. How, how important it is that... Um, as parents, we not only tell children what the right thing to do is, but that we follow up with meaningful discipline. If there's no cost to the action, if there's no correction, there's no motivation to change behavior. <laughs> this always reminds me of when I was a kid growing up. Maybe you can relate to this. But I remember in school, whenever, whenever the regular teacher was gone and there was a substitute, occasionally you'd get a really good substitute. But, but more often, they're just kind of lost and trying to keep up with things. And, and inevitably, we would have a substitute teacher that would kind of be all talk but no action. 
And usually the class could figure it out in the first couple of minutes. Like it's just a bunch of empty threats and we're gonna be in control of things from this point on. And, and there's parenting that ends up becoming much like that where we're either laughing about things we should be grieved about, we're making threats that we don't follow through on. Parenting is hard, isn't it? Oh my gosh, yeah. Anyway, rather than demand change or justice, or call on the people to drive these two out. Eli laments in verse 25, if one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. So Eli really gives sort of this despairing perspective that um, is, is certainly serious, but again, um, he, he doesn't require anything. But interestingly enough, God is working through Eli's weakness. Judgment was accumulating, and, and they'd crossed a line that God would severely correct. And in this case, there would be none to intercede. They, they had the opportunity to repent for years. Sometimes we can read passages like this and think, oh, God's so harsh in judging. These are grown men. They've grown up around the things of the Lord. There's, they, they, they would have been exposed to the law of God. They knew better. This wasn't some you know, shock or surprise all of a sudden. Time is up, and now they'll face God's righteous judgment. What had been pleasurable for a season, as is always the case with sin, was going to cost them much more than they'd ever intended or imagined. And that is part of what I'm hoping that, that we would receive from the Lord this morning, those areas in our lives where we, we, we ourselves have neglected what the Holy Spirit has absolutely been showing us. God, God certainly is not, uh, is, is not a father in the sense of Eli. No, no. He's very clear with us through his word and by his Holy Spirit. We make excuses. We, we draw our own lines and parameters in terms of rewriting the word of God to accommodate our weakness and sin and persuasions. Someone once said, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. And that is why it's so important that we respond today in this moment when God is speaking to us. Take care that you're not neglecting some area in your life that God's desperately trying to free you from. Least the cost become greater than you can manage, than you intended. Now, miraculously, again, despite this, God was preserving a remnant, a means of deliverance, a voice of reason and hope, a prophet. And he always does that. And so we come to verse 26 in our second point, heartache and hope. And the child Samuel, in contrast to this, grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. It's, it's miraculous, really. In the midst of this, this horrible darkness that seemingly has overtaken the kingdom and certainly the, the worship of God, we find light. It's, it's where mercy comes in in today's message because we are talking about judgment, but also the mercy of God. And, and here it is manifested in, in Samuel in many ways. God's provision and preparation of this young man who will be to Israel a voice of hope and clarity. Uh, 
a word of wisdom to her rulers and a light to the way in which God was calling them. The scenario, it reminds me a lot of, of Elijah's circumstances when, when he was fleeing Jezebel and, and just felt that, that everything was hopeless and he was despairing. And what did he say? He cried out to God and said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Life can seem this way sometimes. Our world, and we can look at it, and, and we can sound like, like Elijah, telling the Lord, boy, man, you're lucky you got me on your team because there's nobody left. And I'm, frankly, I don't know what you're going to do because I'm out. You know, this whole, you know, kingdom of God thing, it's, it's, it's on the edge here. I hope you're paying attention, okay, because I've tried, and nobody's listening, God, okay? It's just all going, you know where, and you know what, and, uh, and, and yeah, right. What does the Lord say to Elijah? <laughs> and, and things may well be hopeless. They were pretty dark in Israel at that time, weren't they? But it didn't mean God wasn't in control. It didn't mean he didn't have a plan. I have reserved 7,000 in Israel. God bless you, Elijah. <laughs> You've worked hard. You, you've done a lot. You've walked in obedience and faith. But please understand, you're, you're not the only thing I've got going in the world, Okay. I'm bigger than what you can see and understand. I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. We find here in 1 Samuel that God is about doing this same thing and is raising up of Samuel. And the heartache, God is always bringing hope. He's ever working in this way among his people and in the world. And we need to remember that when we're inclined to be given to hopelessness, to think that things are beyond restoration, that God is done. Now, certainly th th that, that uh, does reach, that, that point is reached at times. He was there with Eli's sons, but not with his people as a whole. The child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. You can't help but think, how is this possible? Knowing Hophni and Phinehas are kind of in charge of things and, and influencing, and there's, you know, there's virtually, there is, there's prostitution happening right in the house of God. It's like, how is this? You sort of get that image of pictures you've seen of a sidewalk or a city street or something, and there's one little flower making its way up through a crack. It's like, how does that even happen? It is, it was. First of all, God is able Secondly, I think it also speaks well of, of Eli and others in and around the tabernacle. Though the high priest had failed with his sons in some serious respects in regard to discipline, he no doubt had been a good father in other ways. And I think we see this displayed in his relationship later in the book of Samuel with the young Samuel. Even the best parents can have children who rebel, who we're, we are, after all, and our kids are fearfully and wonderfully made, and, and they're responsible for making their own choices, because I know there are those among us who would think, well, I guess I must have been an Eli, and it's, it's all my fault. Well, <laughs> even the ones that end up with Samuels, sometimes we look at, what did they do right? It's 
the grace of God that anybody has any kids that, you know, turn out doing anything positive. And sometimes we can do our best, and yet kids still struggle because God's made us with the capacity to choose. You can't convince me that Hophni and Phinehas were not exposed to, to the truth of God, that they didn't have opportunities to choose something different. Of course they did, but they purposed to go after their flesh. Samuel was, was trained well, but he also responded to that. He chose to grow in the way of the Lord. Samuel's, his path to maturity, it's, it's noteworthy. He grew, we, we read, in three specific ways, and it reminds us of what Luke writes about Jesus in 2.52, that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. It sounds very, very similar. Samuel grew physically, he grew spiritually, he grew socially. I also think it's important to note, before we move on to our next point, that where God is raising up hope and light in Israel, he does so through a child, through the next generation. He steps in, in a way outside of the establishment, you might say. Often we expect God to work through the older, and it's not that God can't or doesn't work through the older. I'm not saying that. But we look to, we look to a system. We looked to um, how it's been done in the past. And, and God's looking for somewhere new to pour his wine. He's looking for new wineskins, Jesus said, because they're flexible, they're supple, they're, they're yielded to the fresh things that, that he wants to do. They're not fixated uh, in rigidity on how it was done in the past, not moving outside of God's word, not, not moving outside of scripture and his, his declared ways, but doing, doing what is, what is fresh. He steps outside of the more orthodox and expected means and he does a new work. Again, usually through the young. It's one of the important reasons that we have to be careful about resisting change. And that gets harder and harder the older we get, doesn't it? Oh, man. We like our fur-lined ruts. But the problem is they can keep us from experiencing what God wants to do. Because very often, very often, that's the place through change is where God wants to do a new thing. Many speak of a desire to see God uh, bring about a revival today. But again, we can tend to be fixated on the past and what and how God did it then. But I submit to you that the work that God wants to do today, the work that he will do, is going to look completely different than what we imagine it, than what maybe we experienced or saw or have learned about. I like this section from the end of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You might remember it. The Pevensies, Susan and Edmund, Peter and Lucy, they've come back from Narnia at the end of the book, out of the wardrobe, and they encounter their uncle who also knows about Narnia, and they're sharing about their experiences and wondering if they'll return, and in fact, if they could through the wardrobe. And he responds to them, no, he said, I don't think it will be any good trying to go back through the wardrobe door to get the coats, because they'd left their coats that belonged to him in Narnia. 
You won't get into Narnia again by that route. Yes, of course, you'll get back to Narnia again someday. Once a king in Narnia, always a king in Narnia. But don't go trying to use the same route twice. I think that's the the definition of the modern church. We don't use it twice. It's all we use. What worked in the past? What did we do in the past? Let's repeat it. And yet, when we look in Scripture, we find God doing so many things outside of what we would expect. God's looking for new wineskins. If we're fixated on the past the way we've always done it, we may just miss out on the work that He desires to do today. When Israel wasn't listening to God, he raised up a young voice, that of Jeremiah. When the nation was exiled to Babylon, God set apart young Daniel and his his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When the world needed a savior, he sent his son as a baby, an infant, to be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. But now comes a word directly from God to Eli and his apostate sons, verses 27 through 30. Priesthood and prophecy. Then a man of God, a prophet, came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifices and my offerings, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, I shall, excuse me, those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. So here it is. The the priesthood is going to be taken from this family for. Uh, these sons' sin and Eli's toleration of it. The the tribe of Levi was originally set apart from uh, for the priesthood of which Aaron's family was chosen to be high priests and to serve in that most prominent way. You could read of that in Exodus chapter 29. There it uh, is recorded, the priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statute. That was God's original plan that the family of Aaron would be the, uh, the priesthood in perpetuity, serving there in the tabernacle. Aaron had four sons, and Eli's descendants came from the fourth. His name was Ithamar. Verse 30, Therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. Of course, that promise was made originally to Levi, but at some point it was communicated to Eli's family similarly that that they would bear this responsibility. Now, Aaron again had four sons, and eventually as we make our way through scripture, um, we're going to find this privilege in fact taken from Eli's family as we just Red and uh, the descendants of Aaron's son 
Ithamar. Zadok of that family is going to be the new priestly line under David, and he's the son of Abiathar. And if none of that made sense, you should have had a second cup of coffee. It's your fault, not mine. No, I'm just kidding. I know it's kind of, it's a little bit of history there. But anyway, the tribe and family of Levi had been offered great privilege and honor. And in, in Eli's family, that precious gift and responsibility, it was squandered, it was disregarded, it was disdained, treated not just lightly, but uh, as nothing. Verse 28, let's look at this judgment again. And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Remember, Hophni and Phinehas, they, they'd abused that privilege, taken whatever they'd wanted, forced people to give it to them when they wanted it. Uh, why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? And we, we look at that and we say, well, you know, Eli, he loves God and he fears him. And there's these positive things about Eli. Yes, but in not disciplining his sons, in not requiring of them submission to the word of God, he was elevating them above God and his word. Though Eli was not personally participating in this sin, he was responsible and therefore also guilty. Hophni and Phinehas, they wanted all of these privileges, but apart from holy living. These sons, they'd grieved the Spirit of God and sinned in profaning worship, and Eli had sinned in tolerating it, again, honoring his sons more than the Lord. And it's interesting because in the context of our experience today, in the church. There are those who they want to be a part of the church. They want to experience the blessings, the positives, but they're not interested in the cost. I want, I want to feel good. Uh, church and, and being a Christian, it's all described in terms of what I can get out of it. And that shouldn't be shocking because so much of the church today, what's fed from the pulpit is a parishioner-centered gospel and, and Christianity. It's all about your best life now. It's all about your felt needs. It's all about series after series on how you can be the best this or how you can experience all of that. I, you know, shocker, I hate to uh, disrupt your life, but the Bible is not all about you. It has a lot to say about the holy God that we serve. Our orientation is, is, is too much very often ourselves in the center and, and we're here to look out to and see God, and he's just sort of this ornament that we've placed on our, our tree as the body of Christ. It's not supposed to be that way. It's about the Lord. Yes, he loves you, in case you're questioning that, for God so loved the world. Put your name in there. Come on, we're not going to go to heaven and, and you know be marching back to the sound booth telling them, you know, it needs to come down or up or correcting the worship leader or, or, or you know, whatever else is going on, the lighting, I'm, it's, I'm a little bothered by, you know, it's, I, I'm, I'm not saying things don't matter. We, we work to minister an environment that's a blessing to worship. But part of the challenge here is that we would view our worship and service and living for God from a biblical perspective and understand the requirements that he places on us as his children. James chapter 3, verse 1 reminds us, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. 
Do not be deceived, Galatians 6. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. Now, finally, we'll look at the last uh, six verses here as we finish up this chapter and, and gain some more details as to this prophetic word of judgment against Eli and, and his two sons, their household suffering and salvation. Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. And you will see an enemy in my dwelling place despite all the good which God does for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But many of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas, and one day they shall die, both of them. Both of them would die. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that whoever is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. This, this family that had stolen from God would be reduced to begging, essentially. The judgment, it's, it's thorough and it's pretty heavy. If, if you were Eli... And this was a word being spoken to you and your family. You, you definitely would be uh, distraught. And it helps us to understand how seriously God takes all of this. Those that would seek to represent God and then stumble his people are ensured severe punishment. Suffering. But this word, it ends with with. The prophet speaking of a faithful priest that was yet to come, salvation, hope. Now this shall be a sign to you, verse 34, that will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phinehas in one day. Excuse me, this isn't the, the hope part. <laughs> we, haven't, we haven't gotten to that yet. Uh, that's coming in a moment. I, I skipped a sentence there. Yeah, let's just finish up with the judgment first. Um, in one day, they're both going to die. And... Um, and they'll both be dead. First uh, Samuel chapter 4, that's going to happen. The Philistines, they're going to come against Israel. And, and in battle, Israel's going to start losing. We'll study it uh, shortly. But, of course, what happens is the armies of Israel say, oh, we're losing. Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it out here in our midst so God will be with us. They didn't have the reality of God's presence. And so they wanted uh, some... Uh, artifact, some instrument that seemed to bring God's presence and blessing, which of course would not be a reality, but uh, what happened was Hophni and Phinehas were both killed in battle and the ark was captured by their enemies and then uh, Eli died as well not long after that. It's a mess. But after the darkness of judgment and, and suffering, as I mentioned earlier, mercy is spoken of, salvation. Verse 35 then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. This word has sort of a near and far fulfillment. You might remember that from when we went through. Pastor Steve and I 
our, uh, our, our series on end times, four-part series at the end of last year, where prophets sometimes will speak of circumstances as though they're happening one after the other, not unlike looking at a mountain range where you see hills and foothills and mountains, and it seems like, oh, they're all there together. And the reality is they're miles apart from each other. And as we read this passage in all likelihood, it speaks of things that God was doing right there in that moment. Zadok, who would be the next high priest that would replace Eli's family. Also, likely Samuel himself, who would be raised up as a priest and a prophet. But neither of them would walk before God's anointed forever. Verse 36 uh, describes uh, this, this judgment, but, but the whole of it seems to be pointing to the greater mercy that God would extend to his people that's found ultimately in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7 makes uh, abundantly clear to us that Jesus is that greater high priest. Verse 25 of Hebrews 7, Therefore he also is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. God's righteous judgment is a serious reality that, that we all need to face but we don't have to live in fear of it. Just as God provided mercy, first in the form of Samuel, then later through salvation in the Messiah, we can choose mercy through Jesus. It's available to you and I. Pastor Frankie, maybe you can rejoin us as we move toward communion this morning. As we think about this morning's message, judgment in contrast to mercy. And we've been challenged to consider our own lives in those areas maybe where we've been guilty of tolerating sin, neglecting the greater work that God by his Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. May this be a moment where we respond as Paul writes to the Corinthians and challenges them to do, especially in light of the communion table that we would take advantage of the opportunity to be made right before God. Not, not partaking of, of the bread and the wine while our hearts are resisting and refusing to surrender and yield. Dr. Henry Allen Ironside, he tells a story from the early days of expansion into the American West. He writes of pioneers who were making their way across one of the central states to a distant place that had been opened up for homesteading. They traveled in covered wagons drawn by oxen and progress was necessarily slow. One day they were horrified to note a long line of smoke in the distance across the west, stretching for miles across the prairie and soon it was evident that the dried grass was burning fiercely and coming rapidly toward them. They had crossed a river the day before, but it would be impossible to go back uh, 
to that before the flames would be upon them. One man only seemed to have understanding as to what could be done. He gave the command to set fire to the grass behind them. Then when a space was burned over, the whole company moved back where the flames had been. As the fire roared on toward them from the west, a little girl cried out in terror, Are you sure we shall not all be burned up? The leader replied, My child, the flames cannot reach us here, for we are standing where the fire has been. He writes, What a picture of the believer who is safe in Christ, and then quotes this hymn. On him almighty vengeance fell, which would have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for a chosen race and thus became our hiding place. The fires of God's judgment burned themselves out on him. And all who are in Christ are safe forever, for they are now standing where the fire has been. And that is where God calls you and I to stand today. Because most likely there's no one here this morning that doesn't have some sense of conviction about some sin in their life. And a lot of you know where to go with that. You know to go to the cross to receive forgiveness and stand in the grace of God. But others are under weights and burdens that have become a little bit overwhelming. And my encouragement to you would be to surrender, to stop neglecting what you need to do, to bring that sin out into the light of God's presence, to the foot of the cross, to stand where judgment has already been, that the blood of Jesus might cleanse your guilt and shame and that you might walk in the light, that, that you might stand in your identity as a, as a son or a daughter of the King. Let's pray as we prepare to take communion. Father, we thank you for the provision of your son, Jesus Christ, who was sent for us, his body broken in our place, his blood poured out, his life lived and laid down for us. Thank you that he willingly received in himself the judgment that we deserved. God, that forgiveness would be ours for the asking, and we are asking, and we do that now. God, would you cleanse us? Would you forgive us for our failure, for our, our willful rebellion? God, in those places where our, our heels have been stuck in the ground, we've refused to bend, we've been nursing sin, excusing it. Lord, we want to expose it to the light of your Holy Spirit. We want to repent and turn from it and pray, would you forgive us? God, would you cleanse us? We want to walk in holiness. We want to walk in your way. God, we thank you for the bread. That Jesus, it represents your body laid down for us. bruised and broken in our place. 
Jesus, you, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world, the one in whom there is no spot or blemish. Thank you that you invite us to this table to partake, to receive. We do that now, praying that you would bless it in Jesus' name. Let's take the bread. Father, we thank you for the cup. That cup of suffering, Jesus, that you willingly took. That's captured in this wine, this grape juice that speaks of your blood. Reminds us of the cost that you laid your life down. That no sacrifice on our part can equal to. There's nothing we can do but receive it, and that's what you ask of us. Not that we would work, not that we would earn, but that we would humble ourselves and say, please forgive me. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did. Thank you for your righteous life poured out for mine. I don't deserve it. I could never earn it, but I thank you. And we pray that you would bless this cup, Jesus, that... that speaks and, and, and is to us the cup of life and forgiveness. Thank you for your blood that was shed, Jesus, that, that causes it to be true for us that as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. Would you bless this cup now as we take it in Jesus' name?